Yo, what's up? Welcome to the 15th episode of Two Writers Slingin' Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics. And today we're going in a totally different direction. Our guest is a huge departure for me, and I'm insanely psyched about it. Shelley Wright is, for my money, one of the absolute best songwriters on the planet, which really makes her one of the best writers on the planet. For any sort of fan of country music, you know her tunes, from Shut Up and Drive to Single White Female to Hard to Be a Husband, Hard to Be a Wife, which she performed and wrote with Brad Paisley. She has 10 studio albums, and her latest, I Am the Rain, dropped last year. And today we're talking songwriting, how to do it, how to do it well, the differences between great lyrics and meh, meh lyrics. Is rhyming that important? Are Hall and & Oates and Tupac the geniuses I believe them today? All this stuff, all right now, on Two Writers Slinging Yang. Right, so Shelly, first of all, um, thank you so much for doing this. We just, uh, off, the, off the air, I guess you call it the air, we just exchanged our pleasantries, but I am a... Uh, I'm a huge admirer of yours. I really am. And, and um, it's interesting because I'm not a huge, huge, huge country music guy. But you are an insanely good songwriter. An insanely... And I wonder, do you view yourself... Um, does it work this way? Do you view yourself more of, of a songwriter than a singer? Do, do people in your mm-hmm. pr- profession split your personalities in that way? Well, hold on. There's a lot to address, okay. Jeff. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of yours too. You're one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. And then you and I've kind of gotten to become pals a little bit. And I, yep. I really, um, I love that I get to talk to you and, and, and especially today that I get to talk to you about songwriting. Um, you know, uh, I think I see myself differently as the years of my career kind of tick by. I mean, I, I was signed first before I had a record deal. I was signed as a staff writer at Polygram Music in 1993 Mm -hmm. and that was my first you know not my first music industry gig but that was my first like big major label type thing and it was as a songwriter and then my record deal came shortly after that and and I recorded some songs that I'd written some outside songs and and then I focused a lot on you know being a an entertainer a singer and somebody that you know, could build that kind of catalog with my records. But at the heart of me, I see myself as a, as a songwriter. I've written songs for other artists and songs for myself. And if you were to ask people who love me, like what lights the light in my eyes more than anything, it's the day I've written a new song. That feels better than anything to me. Oh, that's awesome. It's it's, I, it's funny because I was reading, uh, reading through your bio and reading through your lyrics. And one of your biggest hits, it might be your biggest hits, is Single White Female, which you mm-hmm. did not write, correct? Right. And I, correct. Wonder, I wonder, when, um, when you sing a song that you did not write, can you still have the same connection to the song, or is it different? A thousand percent, yes. Um, and part of that is the, the way that we as artists come across songs that 
perhaps we didn't write like single white female for instance i found that song like what does that mean of, what does that mean uh, actually yeah there are a lot of people involved in a person's career when you're on a label you've got you've got a manager you've you know if you're also a songwriter you've got publishers and song pluggers and then you have a relationship with music row song pluggers but then at the label you've got these guys and gals who it's their job to find songs for you they're called a and r artist mm -hmm. and repertoire and I had at the time, you know, one of the best in the business, uh, Larry Willoughby was my A&R guy. And he and I would go out and have five meetings a day with song pluggers at different publishing companies. And people would leave hundreds, if not thousands of CDs with, with the label and management or hand it to me on the bus or just any number of ways to get a song to you. And and I had a cardboard box in the back of my vehicle uh, that had CDs and actually some cassettes <laughs> and um, oh, the old but it, days. It, yeah, the good old days and, you know, some dats that, you know, all, all kinds of uh, recording medium anyway. So I got home after having been on the road and I just took that box into my house and I sat down on the floor with my boom box and started going through them. And it literally is a needle in the haystack. It is you, you, it's typical to listen to, 400 songs and find nothing that works mm -hmm. now it doesn't mean the songs aren't good it just means it doesn't you know fit the narrative of what you're doing or it's derivative of something you've already done and so i came across this uh cd um that said single white female and had the co-writers last names on it shay smith and carolyn don johnson i put it in and i heard this really hooky and then i heard the words and the core it was it was perfect. So I called Tony Brown, the head of my label, who was also my produ one of my producers uh, at the time, Buddy Cannon, Nora Wilson, and Tony Brown were producing me. And I said, Tony, what are you doing this afternoon at three and, or whatever? And he said, what do you got? And I said, I found something. And I lived 45 minutes outside of town, way out in the woods in Cheatham County at the time. And he said, what do you got? And I said, I'm going to come see you. And I went to see him at three o'clock, went into his office. And his his head about popped off. He was like, "That's a hit," and uh, and we cut it, and it was. Now, how much of that could be like? I'm actually being serious. You're 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 reading through or you're listening to different songs. Could it be as arbitrary as like you had tuna fish for lunch and you're in a better mood because you love tuna fish and you hear a song at that moment and the tuna is reacting to your system and the song is great. And if you had happened to eat the ham sandwich instead, you wouldn't like it. Uh, that's a good question, and and not. Not at all out of bounds. Um, by the time you get to sort of the level of what I was doing at the time with the the pros around me and the and the pros from whom I had learned, mm -hmm. that would have been it would have been pretty shocking had you know acid indigestion caused me to <laughs> right. not hear that song. Right. But but I know what you're saying. You know, sometimes if the weather's just right and you you got the top down right. and you're driving, listening to songs, but it, 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 it's not very sustainable. One would get home, you know, and then listen again and go, what the heck was I thinking? Right. This one I knew every time I played it for Tony, then Buddy, then Larry Willoughby, we all, we all knew. We just knew. Does your, does your taste for a song, like, all right, when I was in college, uh, Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby came out mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I thought it was the greatest song on the planet. And all I wanted to do was listen to Ice Ice Baby. I cannot listen to that song now. I don't think it's good. I think, that, you know, the whole thing, I just can't listen to it. And I wonder, do, what, what defines a good song for you in 1999 
is that the same thing that defines a good song in 2017 or is it totally different as your life changes well let me put dissect a little bit what what you were talking about ice ice baby and how you couldn't get enough of that, you know, you and the rest of the world. Right. I, I was put, put me in that camp as well. Right. There's a difference between a great record and a great song. Some, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, um, but sometimes it's just not a great song, but it's just a hell of a record. And conversely, sometimes it, there's a great song and just it hasn't been recorded properly. Um, so I think what you were reacting to with ice ice baby in the 90s was that they just they got lightning in a bottle sonically instrumentally artist wise it just popped uh it's not you know i don't think it's a great song you know maybe maybe i'm speaking out of school maybe i need to go back and study the lyric but if i remember correctly it's it's an okay song but it's just a heck of a recording right um they also stole they also stole queen and david bowie's under pressure so that did not of course (laughs) well that always helps and people have been ripping off the greats for years you know um but as far as like what what constitutes a great song for me you know as i was learning about music and uh, learning about being a writer and and as compared to now i I don't think that the criterion have changed much. I think I still understand, you know, the the fundamentals of that's great or that's not great or boy they dropped the ball on that on that bridge. I, right. I think I get that. I, who knows? You know. Right. right. All right. So you um, how do you write a song? Like it's you. It's last year you had your uh, your latest album come out. I am the rain. Mm-hmm. Um, you're writing songs for it. Like, how do you, is it like, okay, today it's Thursday. I have some time to kill. I'm going to go to Starbucks and write a song. How do you write a song? Well, from the perspective of a professional songwriter, I don't ever say I've got some time to kill. I should write a song. It's like, <laughs> it's my, it's my job, right. you know? So, I mean, much like you, when you, I know you write in coffee shops a lot, which I love following mm-hmm. on the socials because uh, your commentary is pretty wicked funny. But, um, it's a matter of there are different ways that a song comes to a songwriter. And again, I can only speak for myself, but there are times when I wake at two in the morning with an idea and I, you know, I grab my phone and I write it down or I hit a voice memo and I hum a little bit. Those, those moments happen less frequently than the actual act of just sitting down and, you know, saddle time. There's, there's just, it, it's a, you know, Harlan Howard, one of the greatest songwriters of all time, was a mentor of mine. And he wrote I Fall to Pieces for Patsy Cline, Heartaches by the Number, Busted for uh, Ray Charles. He wrote a bunch of hits. But he was one of my early mentors as I first got to Nashville. And he said, kid, you got you to gotta get the bad ones out of the way. And the only way to do that is, you know, you sit in the saddle and do it. And it's it's muscle memory. And it's, you know, you have to make yourself every day turn off the TV and turn the phone off and sit down with your guitar or your instrument or whatever and start start making something happen now it's it's often not very fruitful i write a lot of really average songs through that process but the thinking that harlan tried to express to me which i hope and pray that i absorbed is that I will know what to do with a good idea when I get it because I've sat down and kind of muscled through those really kind of boring ideas. Right. So do you know a bad song when you write a bad song? Like if you write a mediocre song, are you aware 
as soon as it's done? Or do you have moments where you're like, man, I just, this is great. And then the next morning you're like, what the hell was I thinking? Again, that doesn't really happen to me a lot. I usually know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I try to finish everything irrespective of, you know, whether it's, oh gosh, this isn't very good or it's just average. Cause I always, I feel like I can take any idea and write a fundamentally good song, but it's, it's, it's above and beyond a good song that we're looking for. Um, I wrote maybe 50 songs for I Am The Rain, and they were all technically, like if you were to go to a songwriting class at NYU and, and kind of dissect them all, they would be, they, the, the a teacher of the, the class would say, this is a good job. She did a good job here, and she put this here, and she didn't, over, she didn't mix metaphors, and she didn't overuse colloquialisms, and this rhymes, the rhyme schemes are right. But it's more in this part of my career or a person who makes music professionally, it's less about did you write a good song or is there is there magic in that song? Right. And, and and that's kinda that's kinda what we're looking for. Right. Oh, that's really well said. Um you wrote a song, I was reading the lyrics from your, your most recent album, and you wrote a song called Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I was reading the lyrics and I was like, This is poetry and you know, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll quote you to you, but I wait on tables here in quite how I planned it. Pay's not that great, but I do all right in tips. I took the job to get me by when my husband left me stranded. I still don't know just where the hell he is. After dark, six nights a week, I pull this apron snug, glance up at the dusty TV blaring local news. Then I'm everybody's best friend, dealing coffee like a drug. The whole place smells like fries and diesel fuel. So that line, the whole place smells like fries and diesel fuel, I'm sitting in my closet in Southern California, it's 80 degrees, and I feel like I can hear that song or read those lyrics and actually smell fries and diesel fuel. And I'm kind of fat. Yeah. How did you, I imagine you are, uh, I'm guessing you're not a waitress in Mexico. So I'm wondering, how did you come up with that? Oh, I love that you're referencing that song. Um, okay, so um, this is fun. Uh, so I, when I first started touring, I, I was Porter Wagner hired me to be uh-huh. his, as he called it, girl singer in his band right. in 1989 or 1990. And, and uh, I, that began my, my experience of real road travel and a bus. And, you know, I'd played the tri-state area back in Kansas City when I was a kid uh, and had, I had a band and we gigged around, but I really got a taste of, of touring with Porter. And I got bit with the bug uh, of, you know, what, how, amazing it is to put your feet down on a gravel road in South Dakota, you know, you'll never go back to. And so when I, when I was out there touring with my band and first got out there, I, um, I just developed, I don't sleep a lot. And mm-hmm. I just developed this practice that when, when the bus driver would pull over at two thirty in the morning to fuel, I'd go in and I'd look around these truck stops. Now you really, truck stops are magical. Oh, I'm not talking them. about Love I'm not it. talking about just a gas station. I mean, and, and I, t- I tell the, these stories in my, sh- in my show, but, um, you know, you know, you're in a truck stop worth its salt when you can buy an engagement ring, roller skates and an Easter basket all in one. That's and play a you... game and play a game on this Pac-Man in the corner. Right. And get a shower and spray perfume off of a box off, right. the, off the wall. So so I developed this practice of just going in and I had this old guitar player. He wasn't old at the time. Uh, Greg Sneed, he's passed away since. But he hated that I would go in and, you know, get off the bus in the middle of the night and go into these, you know, sometimes kind of seedy truck stops. And um, so he would get out of his bunk and he'd say, come on, Shelster, let, let's go look at the shiny stuff. So we'd go in 
and we'd look around and we'd marvel at the, there was always an entire section dedicated to as seen on TV products, you know? And so after looking at the shiny stuff, we would end up without fail at the diner part of the truck stop. And, mm-hmm. and I would marvel at the, and it was always a gal behind the counter and I would marvel at just kind of the command and the authority with which she did that, that job. You know, she, knew everything about everybody in the room. She knew whose che- check was ready, whose eggs were over easy, who was, don't turn your back on that guy. She called him baby cakes. You know, she was just like a f- philosopher of sorts. And uh, so finally, a couple of years ago, as I was writing for I Am The Rain, I just, I, I took out my guitar and, and finally wrote a song about the aggregate of the thousands of truck stop waitresses. I just think, you know, how'd she get here? Does she love this job? Does she hate this job? How long is she going to be here? Is this her hometown or is she just passing through? And, and that that's how Mexico came about. That's awesome. That's a great, it's a great, I mean, it's great. It's poetry. It really is. It's thanks, one of the best songs I've ever read. Um, uh, awesome. Do you, do you, um, how important, this is going to sound really dumb probably, but how important is rhyming? Rhyming? Yeah. I mean, can we have a song mm. with no rhymes? Can it, because I always think like it would be much yeah. easier to express uh, for a songwriter to express him or herself if you, if there was not a need to actually rhyme the material. So I, I know that sounds dumb in a way, but how important is it? Do you have to rhyme? Does the song have to rhyme? It doesn't sound dumb. And I'll I'll tell you, having, uh, you know, been made my living rhyming. (laughs) um, And then I, and then I wrote a memoir. I, I just felt like these handcuffs of rhyming were off. Right. um, Because I could tell, I could tell in, in prose that's, you know, the, the restraints and constraints and parameters are much different. And, you know, you're a writer of, you, you write books and you write essays and you write articles. And, and when you don't have to rhyme, uh, it, it kind of takes some shackles off. But on the other hand, there's something really, I love the puzzle of, of songwriting. And my favorite part of writing a song is when I've got a verse and a chorus and a, and a half of the second verse. And I know it's not just a good song or an average song. I know there's some juice in it. Mm-hmm. My favorite part of that is stopping, putting my guitar down, go get a cup of coffee or you know, glass of water and coming back and kind of standing and looking at that lyric and feeling it's, a, it's, it's like a high. And a lot of that high is because I know I'm about to sit back down and and kind of sink into the challenge of rhyme because now I know what I want to say. Mm-hmm. Now I know what the the song, the char- who the characters are. If it's me or if I'm talking about the gal in Mexico, it's 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 like a rush to figure out how to say something without compromise and still be able to satisfy those rhymes. And, and my friend Rodney Crowell, who is, mm-hmm. you know, I call him my song shepherd. Um, because he's taught me so much about writing. Rodney is a stickler for hard rhymes. So if you're, you know, if you're writing a song with Rodney and you try to sneak in kind of a soft rhyme or something that doesn't quite rhyme, he won't have it. And it is. And so when I think I, I, my, my adherence to harder rhymes have, has solidified uh, in the time that I've been friends with Rodney, because I, it's, it's a bigger rush than anything to be able to, without compromise, say something in that poetry that you intend to say and it it, it makes you it kind of makes you submit to the language 
it's like it's like a nod and a kneel and a bow to to the English language, which I love. I just love. You know what's really interesting about that? And I, I thought about this as soon as you start answering that. There's a 60 minute interview with Eminem that was really good. And the uh, the interviewer, I don't remember who it was, said to him, Eminem was like, I can rhyme. There's a rhyme for everything. And mm-hmm. the guy said, well, there's no rhyme for orange. And Eminem said, you just have to think about it differently. And he started going on this whole thing how, yeah, mm-hmm. there's no exact rhyme for the word orange, but you could have George with his porridge, ate his orange. And he just like, he was, mm-hmm. he was kind of saying what you were saying. Like there's a beauty in the riddle of it all in trying to yeah. figure out yes. how it's going to fit together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I and that. it's gratifying. And when you get, you know, there are, I'm sure parallels with long form writing and what you do without rhymes, you know, um, when you get, when you get 12 paragraphs to pay off and to keep building to that climax and you do it where you go, I, I couldn't change one, one consonant or vowel. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. It is perfect. That there's, there's just no feeling like that. I, I don't know how to explain it to people who don't write, but uh, trust me when I tell you, uh, to those of you out there in listening land, it's a rush. It is awesome. That's really cool. I feel the same way in a different way. Um, yeah. <laughs> you had a song in, in 1999 I never heard of called um, off of the single white female uh, Picket Fences. And mm-hmm. I thought, I, again, I, I was reading. So I wasn't even listening to your music. I was reading your lyrics, right? And um, mm-hmm. here I am. I'm 45. I'm a dad. And, and it goes, uh, little boys and little girls dream of big, big things. They're taught at a tender age just what life should bring. Get a job, say I do, and settle yourself down. But what about those of us whose lives are still spinning around? Tell me what's so great about picket fences. Painting them is such a mess. And a big black backyard where kids can play, I probably never get a moment's rest. And setting the table for five at five only means more dishes to load. What's so great about picket fences? I guess I'll never know. I fucking love that song. I love that. (laughs) I could hang that in my house right now. That is so ridiculously good. Um, Thank you. Thanks. I know it's been a long time. That's 18 years ago. Um, yeah, yeah. Where does that come from? You know, it's funny. If I was trying to stay closeted, I sure picked a heck of a song to record yeah. and write. Um, what? She's the I, straightest woman in America. Right. right. I mean, it kind of outs me, but I didn't. I didn't see it that way. I knew. I knew that's what it was, but I guess I thought it, I was being sneaky. But mm-hmm. it came from. You know, when you can't, when you're a kid in school and you never get picked to play kickball, yes. you never get picked to be on the team. And then finally you just develop such a a negative response to it. You're like, I friggin' hate kickball right. and I hate you guys on the team. I don't want to play your stupid game when really deep down, that's, that's what you want to do. Um, I was, I knew I was gay at the time, you know, I was in a relationship with a woman for 12 years and. Um, and I wrote it, I actually wrote it several years before I recorded it because I never played it for anybody. Um, it was me kind of poo-pooing on what I knew I deep down really wanted, but could never have because I was never going to come out. I knew that was just never going to happen. So I just tried to belittle, uh, the things that I really wanted. And, and, and I, so I wrote it, um, maybe in 1995 and then. I was making a record, making Single White Female, the album, with Buddy and Noro and Tony. 
and we'd taken a lunch break. Everybody had gone out to lunch, and uh, I came back early, as I often did. I always like to kind of get a reacclimate myself to the room, and I grabbed one of the guitars there in the studio and was in the middle of this. They always dim the lights when you go to lunch, so it doesn't, you know, the, suck the power out of the room or make it really hot in the room because all of that gear is on. But I was in the middle of the room and I just sat down on a uh, on a folding chair and and just started playing. But what I didn't know is that one of the mics on the drum was hot, and so Tony and Buddy got back from lunch, and so they could hear from the control room. And I heard Tony over the or Buddy over the speaker say, "What's that, Shell?" And I said, "Oh, just something." And he said, "Play it. Play it all the way through." And and we cut it that day. It's a really good song. Thank it's really you. good. It's it's Alison Krauss singing uh, background on the on it by the oh, way, awesome. which was a real thrill. Yeah, I bet. Do you um? I mean, you've written a lot for other people, which is kind of interesting. Um, I heard um, you know, Ed Sheeran wrote the Justin Bieber hit, um, "Love Yourself." And which went on to be this massive hit. And I always thought it was interesting. I just heard Ed Sheeran. He did an interview on Howard Stern the other day. And Howard Stern asked him, does it suck to write a song for someone? And then you think I should have sung that myself. And Ed Sheeran was like, as soon as I write a song for someone else, I consider it their song, not my song. Um, You've written for a lot of people. You wrote Richard Marks, Indigo Girls, Brad Paisley, on and on and on. Um, Do you feel the same way? Is there, is there any, is it like giving up a child for adoption? (laughs) <laughs> you know what is well, it like? let me let me first address Ed Sheeran and Justin Bieber. I've recently been on the road and I've been in rental cars quite a bit. And mm-hmm. and I texted my wife and said, I have a confession to make. And she said, what is it? And I said, I cannot stop listening to the Justin Bieber song. Love yourself. It's a great song. And she she laughed and she I said, I I'm I mean, I cannot I've listened to it maybe 500 times and. She said, you know, Ed Sheeran wrote it. And this helped me so much to learn that Ed Sheeran had written it mm-hmm. um, because I, there's some it's a it's genius and great. So to answer the question, do I feel like it's you know, Adam, you know, someone else's baby once they record it? Yeah. I mean, I wrote a song for Clay Walker. that uh, was a, a hit. I record. can't sleep. I can't sleep. Mm-hmm. And I never I mean, although. I wrote it. I didn't feel much of an ownership over it because it, the, when we were writing it, you know, it, I, I knew he was like, I love it. I freaking love it. This is a hit. I, I never thought of it as my song. It was just something that, you know, that, that we carved out together and, and it was never, I didn't consider it mine. Did you think it was a good song? Like, did you know this is a good song? Yeah. You did. Yeah. yeah. And I knew that, Number one, Clay has an insane range. Like he's a fantastic singer. Mm-hmm. For a guy, you know, that wears a cowboy hat, he's he's deceivingly um, a master vocalist. You know, sometimes we see these country boys, and we just think, well, that it's all about the tight jeans and the hat. Not with this guy. This guy's a great songwriter and a great singer. I knew I could never sing it. Like he's got a range that's a few notes wider than mine, and that's a lot. Right. Um, so I just maybe maybe that's why I never felt like it was mine. I was like, geez, I I could I can't record it. I can't sing that. Right. Um, but it was it was really fun to, you know, kind of watch that thing go up the charts and and become a hit and really fun to 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 see him sing live. I don't actually know what it means for singers to co-write a song. Um, I've always in my career, I have always shied away from co-bylining articles. I've never written a book with someone else. Um mm-hmm. 
the process itself strikes me from my vantage point as sort of awkward and clumsy and could lead to conflict. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, just an example, a, a song, I, mean, I just discovered this and I, I just loved it. Hard to be a husband, hard to be a wife, which you wrote with Brad Paisley. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Literally, what does that mean to write a song with someone? How does that work? Yeah, I think I'm with you on the, I, I don't do a lot of co-writing and for years I stopped co-writing because it just left me feeling yeah, disappointed or just like, God, I could have done taken this in another direction had I just done it myself. And um, But then there are also collaborations that are incredibly fruitful and incredibly, you know, uh, the sum of the you know, the, together we're better than, than we are alone. And that was always the case with when I wrote with Brad. Um, Brad's a, an exquisite songwriter. And, you know, we just, we, we, in fact, we recorded every song we ever wrote. Either he did or I did or we did together. How many songs would that be around, would you say? I don't know, six or seven. Mm-hmm. And, we, you know, we toured a lot together. So we, and we were both very busy. So to have written six or seven songs together was a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so hard to be a husband, hard to be a wife. What's that look like writing it together? Mm-hmm. Um, it means we sit down with a couple of guitars and start talking about any number of things. And then, and then we were, we were talking about our careers and we were talking about how when you've got this job, it makes it hard to date. Now we were dating one another at the time. Um, and also I was closeted, uh, mm-hmm. which he didn't know. So there were, there are a lot of nooks and crannies to how the, the whole thing happened, but we just kind of, our love for the Grand Ole Opry is what, what kind of sparked that song. We, we both were like, man, it's, it's just so there's nothing like stepping on that stage and, and it kind of, it makes everything else worth it. It's hard to be a husband, hard to be a wife, but, but this is what we both love right now is, is, is that moment on stage every night, whether it be at the Opry or the Nebraska State Fair. And, and so we just sat down over several appointments and, and wrote it. So you literally are sitting at a table together. It's not like, all right, you go write your lyrics over here. I'll write my lyrics here. We'll come. We'll meet in a week and compare notes. It's not like Oh, that. no. No, it's not like that. I mean, sometimes happens like that. But my, my collaboration, I mean, like the song I Can't Sleep that I wrote for Clay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had that Clay and I wrote together. We had something and then our second verse wasn't right. And then he was touring and I was touring and, you know, I went home and wrote the second verse and sent it to him. And, and he was like, that's it. That's it. So sometimes it happens that way. But by and large, um, you really you're sitting at either in the back of the bus or in a hotel room or in the case of hard to be a husband, hard to be a wife. I think most of it was written at my kitchen table and in my piano room. And so, yeah, it's, it's a very, you don't want to write with everybody. I tell you that I've written with people that I'm like, God, is this guy for real? What an ass. And I've written with some women like that too. But if you've got a real exchange and reciprocity um, that's working and a chemistry that's working, you, there's, there, it's not about hard feelings. You really have to leave your ego at the door and you have to be unafraid to stay, say the stupidest line that you can think of. Uh, because that again is how you get to the great line. And, uh, writing with Brad was just, uh, you know, always a thrill. He's a fantastic songwriter. Do you deal with, uh, I was going to say guys, men and women in song, like in journalism, there are a good number of writers who think they're far better than they actually are or think they're far smarter than they actually are. I think they're far more clever than they actually are. And 
they're not that good or they're just kind of hacks, but they're very hard to deal with. And is that a common, do you come across a lot of songwriters who think they're brilliant and they're really pedestrian? Uh, I've seen it. I, I don't put myself in a room with them. That's probably why. I mean, you mean, you know, you know, you come to being a writer on music row, you kind of, you know what the next class of guys and gals are as songwriters. You can hear, you know, I remember when so-and-so came to town or this writer or that writer, and there's a buzz about them. And, and then sometimes somebody lucks out and happens to be in the room when a hit song is written and their name is on it. But the, the proof is in the pudding. You know, you, I, I, I don't write with anybody who doesn't co-write. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, with anyone who doesn't solo write. I don't co-write with anyone that doesn't have an extensive portion of their catalog uh, that they've written by themselves. Um, right. Except for Liz Rose. She, she's always been a co-writer and she's a genius and we just ended up writing together and um, she doesn't write songs by herself. At least she didn't when I wrote with her, but the thing, what she brings to the table is remarkable. Um, so I, I just haven't put myself in the room with those kind of hack writers. They're out there, they're having hit records and, and they, you know, they, 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 they think they're better than they are, but you know, it's, they'll know, you know, every, right. they'll get a big piece of humble pie as you've seen in your field, you know, right. it happens. Yeah, it definitely does karma. Um, 2005, you won the, <laughs> the best patriotic song from country week, the country weekly awards for bumper of my SUV. And mm-hmm. I kind of love in a way that a, you live in New York, mm-hmm. you're gay, mm-hmm. you're liberal mm-hmm. and you won best patriotic song, which having lived and worked in Nashville back in the nineties though, is almost like you would never think that in that, that those sort of things would all mix together in the world of country music. I don't think you were out at the time when you won the award though. Correct. That's right. All right. This is an amazingly well-written song. Um, it says me, but I've, I've got a bright red sticker on the back of my car it says United States Marines. And yesterday a lady in a minivan held up a middle finger at me. Does she think she knows what I stand for or the things that I believe just by looking at a sticker for the U.S. Marines on the bumper of my SUV. It's a badass freaking song. Like, uh, again, where'd this come from? So my brother, my, you know, I've had a long history with the military. My grandfather was in the army in the big red one in world war two, got his purple heart on the beach of Normandy. My father was on the USS Ariskany during Vietnam in the Navy. And my brother uh, is a just retired after 28 years as a Marine. So I've been playing for the troops since the beginning of my career, going to South Korea and Germany and Italy, going all over and playing for the troops. And frankly, I've been playing for guys at VA hospitals since I was nine years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a real it's a real thing with me. And um and so shortly after September 11th, you know, in 2003, uh, I was about to go over to play for the troops and, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and my brother, before he was deployed to Kuwait to go into Iraq and Afghanistan, he said, sis, I, may, I sent you a letter. Well, he did, did not send a letter. He just sent an envelope with a Marine Corps sticker in it. <laughs> so I um, went downstairs and into my garage and put it on my Isuzu Trooper, my white SUV. Right. It was the only sticker I had on my vehicle. And I uh, went over. 
I played for the troops. I was lucky to be the first artist to play and sing live for the military in uh, Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein. It was really, really made me proud. It was a pretty heavy trip. I mean, yeah, it was yeah. pretty heavy. So I got back to Nashville and I'm driving down West End and I see a lady flashing her lights behind me. And I thought, oh, crap, I cut her off. You know, I'm sorry. She gets up to me at a red light and pulls up next to me and she's signaling for me to roll my window down. I rolled it down and I'm already saying, apologizing for having cut her off. And she pointed to the back of my vehicle and she said, your war is wrong. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And so she sped away and I wanted to talk to her, take her for a coffee and talk to her about the concerns I had about this war, but explain to her, you know, my brother sent me the sticker and did a lot. But I went home and record, wrote this song, sat down at the piano and it fell out of the piano and I hit record on my home studio and didn't think of it again. And then uh, 16 months later, the band and crew and I were going back over to uh, Iraq. And um, I burned a copy of that song. I found it in my studio. I'd forgotten about it. Burned a copy and put it in my backpack and ended up right before the run of shows, handing it to my guitar player at the time and said, hey, learn this really quickly. I, I might want to do it, which, you know, guitar players love it when you do that right yeah, before right. the show. And so he learned it and we did it. And I told the audience the story about it. And I said, and this was an Air Force base, the first show, Camp Air John in Kuwait. And I said, you guys, it's a brand new song. Do you want to hear it? I'm not going to change it to Air Force sticker. This is just a true story. And they said, bring it on. Let's hear it. And the response was pretty overwhelming and remarkable. And, and then we were maybe six or seven shows into that tour. And we we're playing a place called FOB Summerall, which is forward operating base Summerall. Uh, it was the home of the Big Red One, which, mm -hmm. as you'll remember, I told you my grandfather was in the 1st Infantry Division. Mm -hmm. And so after the show, I did. we did the song. And after the show, a young man came up to me in his fatigues and on his fatigues that said, Henry. My grandfather was Harold Henry. And I said, oh, man, we could be related. And uh, he said, you got to record that song. His name was Josh Henry. He's from a small town in Pennsylvania. you got to record that song. My mom would love that song. Oh, my God, that's a great song. And so the band and I just stood and talked with the guys, and it was all guys, all men at that fob that night. And we just had the right, the same night we have with all of the troops, which is emotional and fun and exhausting. And the next day we got up and got in two Black Hawk helicopters and headed off for what would be our last show of that run, which was Camp Taji um, in Iraq. And we landed there that morning, and we, we got word that Josh Henry had been killed that morning in the line of duty. So I went home and just was so, I was just hearing him and all of the other guys and gals that said, you got to record that. That's our song. So I recorded, went to a studio, booked uh, Gordon Moat, Stuart Duncan on Mando, Gordon on piano, and did a little recording, sent it back to Armed Forces Radio Network, and kind of felt like that circle was complete. I, I did it. And then uh, about a week later, maybe 10 days later, a radio station in Florida called Jeff Davis, program director down there, said, can we go live on the air? The song's blowing up our phone lines. I said, what song? I didn't even have a record out at the time. Right. And he said, bumper of my SUV. And what had happened was a soldier who'd heard it in Iraq went to the Armed Forces Radio Network there in Baghdad, got a copy, sent it to his mom. She took it to the radio station in Florida. They put it on the air. Then it began to just kind of float around and get it started climbing the billboard charts with no record label, no promotion, no wow. nothing. Then Walmart called, said, we have to have this song. And so we were able to set it up to where the 
any money from it went right back into money that supported the troops. And, and that song, that single would go on to be the number one selling single in country music that year. Uh, and I say that not, again, you know, yeah, not, I to, get it. Not, not to brag on the song, but just to, I think it said something that, that a lot of people wanted to say at that time, which was, man, you know, those guys and gals in dangerous places. Thank you. Is it, is it an insane rush? when you're performing a song that you wrote and people are singing the lyrics out loud, mm-hmm. it has to be unbelievable. It is. I would never <laughs> <It's>, know that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when a, an aspiring writer, a fan of what you do says, you know, that one part where you talk yeah. about that, they may not even be able to repeat it back to you. But when they talk about how they felt when they read that, or, Oh my God, your gunslinger book about Favre is incredible. And I loved how you did this, and he just seems different to me now and more complex and nuanced. It made me feel this. That's the same thing. When they tell you how it made them feel, right. what you wrote, that's, that's the feeling. Yeah, I get that. Um, I interviewed um, a while ago uh, Stephen Bishop, uh, who wrote the theme to Tootsie and On and On and a bunch of songs kind of in the 70s that were pretty big songs. Oh, wow. And Stephen Bishop now, he's probably 75. And I asked him if he could, if he could write for Justin Bieber right now or Miley mm-hmm. Cyrus. And he's like, I would love to try. Um, but he's like 75 years old. And, and it seems like a 75-year-old mm-hmm. writing for a 22-year-old kid might be a tough stretch. And I wonder, um, you're in your 40s like I am. Mm-hmm. Does it change? Could you write a song now about whatever? To, you know, could you write a song for Justin Bieber? Could you write a song for Selena Gomez? Or does aging and experience and life's experiences, does that change who you are as a songwriter and sort of what you can relate to as a human being? It's a really good question. Uh, I've never given this any thought. Um, I, think, I think the answer is yes, but it would require Justin Bieber or Selena Gomez to want to kind of stretch themselves into maybe a more adult uh, subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not everything I write is about is age related, but sure. emotions like, a, I mean, the love yourself song that, that Justin Bieber and Ed Sheeran wrote again, it's genius. And I'm pretty sure that they originally wrote it as you can go and F yourself. Yeah, they did. They did. They did. Did they? Okay. Yeah. Um, makes sense. But that's a, when you, when you take away kind of the poppiness of who Justin Bieber is, that's, that's a song like that's about hurt and that's about moving on. And that's about saying, you know, I'm really over you. I'm mm-hmm. finally over you. And it was, these are kind of universal themes, whether you're in your twenties, thirties, forties or seventies. So I think, I think if, uh, you know, if they wanted to stretch themselves a little bit emotionally into kind of what I'm doing now, like I Am the Rain, there's a song Joe Henry and I wrote called Holy War. It's a pretty, it's a pretty intense song that kind of draws a line between, you know, the, the, the passion with which people fight holy wars versus the war we fight with our loved ones when we're breaking up, not, not able to make that relationship work. So I think so, but but I don't think Justin Bieber would come to a come to a person like me and say, Hey, I want you to write me a song unless maybe he had done a deep dive into my, what I write lately and go, I want a little bit, bit of that. I want some of that in, in what I'm doing. Right. Interesting. Um, 
that's the song. That's interesting. I, I we keep talking about it, but that song, uh, "Love Yourself." Um, mm-hmm. I saw it this past weekend. I took my daughter to Green Day, and then I went with mm-hmm. a friend to see Hall and Oates. And I feel like either act could have sung that song; it would be good. I feel like you could sing that song; and it would be good. I feel, you know what I mean? Like some songs. It's a great song. Just yeah. span it. It's just unbelievable. They just do. Well, and it's it's again, it's that magic. Like a lot of people who don't write songs, they look at a song and go, "I could have written that," right. but really, it's so hard to marry a, the just the right lyric with just the right melody, and then and then you factor in the actual recording of it. Like we, you and I talked at the top of the discussion, is that you can have a great song and just not get the recording in a way that that is right or resonates with people. That is just, they got lightning in a bottle with that. It's so great. Right. Um, here's a debate my wife and I always have. I'll make it one of the last questions here. I know. Uh, I know what it is. No, I don't think you do. What do you think it is? Is it the Hall and Oates, Elton John question? No, but I would love to ask you that. <laughs> you did. Last who, time we, we talked. Oh, yeah, right. All right. Who do you like more, Hall and Oates? Oh, you said Elton John. No, I didn't. Oh, you said Hall and Oates? Did I? Okay. Well, I've thought of it a lot since we talked. I don't know how I answered it, but... It, my my opinion, could, I I think Holland Notes are that's a they write genius songs. It's a given that that Elton John is a genius writer, but I think Holland Notes gets a little bit of a short deal because people look at them like as like an '80s poppy thing, but they they were geniuses. So was uh, Rick Springfield. Jesse's Girl is one of the greatest songs ever written. I agree. Um, I also want to say Holland Notes just sold out back to back nights at the Staples Center, which to me. You're kidding. No, me. it's unbelievable. I have no idea how, but they did. Back to back. Incredible. Okay, um, so go on. No, what I want to ask you is, all right, so I um, I grew up having the hugest crush on Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston was, I was a 12-year-old boy when her first album came out, mm-hmm. and I would just stare at that album and listen to the songs, and mm-hmm. I every song spoke every song spoke to me and my future relationship with Whitney Houston. And then her next album came out, same thing, Whitney Houston. And then... When I was a little older, I realized that she did not write a single song. She never wrote a song. She did not write any of the songs, any of the lyrics. Right. Does that at all take away? You know, Billy Joel writes his song, writes the lyrics. Elton John does not. He has Bernie Taupin. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Does it at all take away, in your opinion, from a quote-unquote artist if they're singing but not writing the songs? Depends on how good a singer they are and how good an interpreter of of that poetry they are uh there there may never be anyone as good at it as Whitney Houston um when you have that kind of a gift some of us are talented she had a gift like she was meant she was meant to sing those songs that she sang and she gave life to so many uh songwriters careers and she made and she made millions of dollars and fortunes for people and uh, and it doesn't surprise me. She, whatever, when she opened her mouth and that that came out, it was so far superior to anything any of us who write and record our own music do. Right. Um, so no. So, but if someone's you know recording other people's songs and they're not that good a singer and takes a lot of studio magic to make it happen on the record, and then I hear them live and they're not very good, yeah, I don't, I don't have, you know, I. I I respect every artist that's doing this job because I know how hard the job is. If you are somehow able to somehow get a hit record, that means you've done endless radio tours. That means you've put in the time. That means you've signed stacks of 2,000 posters on Street Week. 
that means you've done the work. But as far as like, who do I respect? A voice like Whitney Houston. Uh, I don't know that I could respect anyone's gift more than I do hers. Yeah, well said. She never, uh, she never wound up marrying me, unfortunately. D- she did not. No. She did not. She had some relationship struggles. She did. Perhaps she should have knocked on your door, Jeff. If she had married Jeff Perlman, she would have been living a very <laughs> pedestrian yet, you know, I think fruitful life here in California with me. And my- I think she wouldn't have. Uh, had she been inclined to marry you, Jeff Perlman, uh, which I don't think she was inclined no, to marry uh, you. Uh, she probably wouldn't have become a drug addict and she'd probably still be here today. Yeah, there you go. The regret of Whitney Houston not marrying Jeff Furlan. Um, listen, Shelly, as I've said a million times, I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge admirer. I have really come. I, what I love about this today, and this is the first time I can say this, and this is my uh, 14th episode here, 15th, is um, I've really become familiar with your writing over these past few days. And you are just, I really mean this, you are a beautiful writer and it's a mm-hmm. honor for me to do this so thank you so much jeff that that means uh, that that lands on me pretty heavily today thank you for that thank you i want to thank today's guest shelly wright for joining me on two writers thing and yang you can visit shelly's website at shelly.com and also follow her on twitter at shelly wright one can listen to two writers thing and yang on both itunes and bumpers.fm reviews are always appreciated they truly are Again, the music is from the great MC White Owl. Thanks so much for joining me. And remember, keep writing.